back, everyone. You're watching We Heart Therapy, the special series EFT Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, licensed marriage and family therapist here in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm also a certified EFT supervisor and therapist, and I am so excited to welcome back Dr. Sam Hinich. He is the director of the San Francisco Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy, and he is also responsible for bringing EFT to Latin America, Spain, Central America, all the Spanish-speaking countries um, that have EFT so far. Sam has been integral and the one who who brought it there and now we have a few other spanish-speaking trainers which is amazing and sam's doing great work and we did a previous video make sure if you haven't seen it yet you watch it on forgiveness in eft and uh thank you again sam so much for being with us today oh annabelle thank you so much for the invitation it's always wonderful to to connect with you and to be on your show is a real privilege so thank you so much for for having me here Awesome. So what we are going to talk about today is working with withdrawers. And we know that can be kind of a broad topic. And certainly as I've grown in EFT, my understanding and blocks around um, withdrawers and understanding withdrawers has progressed and matured and shifted and changed as I'm sure has probably happened for you guys as EFT therapists. So um, Sam's agreed to, to talk with us about withdrawers today. So Sam, if you could kind of start us off by maybe sharing, I don't know if the right word would be definition, or can you kind of offer maybe a brief conceptualization of what makes a person a withdrawer, and how is that different from avoidant attachment? Okay, well, first of all, um, I'm really glad to be able to, to speak about this in some ways. Um, it's it's a topic that so many of us therapists uh, struggle with because we we're because in emotionally focused therapy we want to get into their we want to get into the emotions and we want to work with them. Uh, all of a sudden, we find ourselves quite challenged when uh, we 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 run across someone who has a hard time accessing their own emotions or putting words to their experience. And so, um, when we think about the uh, withdrawers and pursuers, I think we need to step a little bit. Uh, back before we label people as either in one of either of those two categories. But we have to think about it the way the John Bowlby thought of attachment styles. And he and Mary Ainsworth um, started to divide um, people that were not securely attached as, um, as insecurely attached, um, insecurely, you know, people were secure or insecure. And then among the insecure, we had people who were um, avoid, you know, anxiously attached. Mm -hmm. And then we also had people who were more, um, um, uh, within the anxiously attached people, we had people who were, who would get very anxious and dysregulated and, and raise the volume and, and under the, um, the folks who were also, um, insecurely attached, they weren't anxious, they were more avoidant. Right, so some people tend to raise their volume when they're when they're under a sense of threat, and some people tend to lower the volume. Pursuers emotional volume, emotional volume. so exactly, and so emotional volume does not necessarily have to be verbal volume. It just means that they're 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 under pursuers, for example, are under regulating their emotions. The emotions just come through, and they need to do whatever they can to gain control of their emotions. Mm -hmm. People with a more avoidant attachment style. 
they are over-regulating their emotions. They're doing a lot of suppression. They're doing a lot of self-soothing. They're trying, they're doing a lot of distracting. They're doing everything they can because they actually feel so much of what's going on. It's not, we often think of withdrawals, people don't feel anything. Well, it's not that they don't feel anything. They said don't have necessarily the language to put to their experience, or it feels so uncomfortable. They don't want to feel bad or they don't want to talk about it because it it could only make things worse, right? So, um, but 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 going back to the basics, I think of John Bowlby and neuroscience. We know that we are wired for connection, and we are wired for survival, mm-hmm. primary function, right? So when we receive a danger cue or a threat signal, we need to do whatever it, we can to get through that and to get back to connection. Disconnection is a danger cue for human beings. We, are, we need a connection in order to survive, right? Love is imperative and connection is imperative and a secure connection is what will get us through, right? So when something happens in the bond with our partner or with someone we are very close to, we immediately start to get into some kind of distress. We have a signal that says, this is dangerous. You, uh, you, uh, life is more dangerous, separated and alone. So do whatever you can to get back to connection. That's why some people think of attachment theory as, an atta- as a theory of survival, right? We're trying to survive, we're trying to stay connected. So when you are more in, when you are not securely attached, when you're insecurely attached and you're either anxious or avoidant, um, you're going to react to those signals in different ways. So some people will react in a more anxious way, we call them pursuers. And some people are gonna react in a more avoidant way we call them withdrawers. But what's really important is to not think of pursuing and withdrawing as verbs. We want you to think of pursuing and withdrawing as protests, protests of disconnection, right? And people will protest disconnection in, in, in those, in the, in, primarily in those two ways. We get, we get anxious and we wanna, and we under-regulate our emotions and we wanna do whatever we can to bring our person back towards connection. Withdrawers are doing the same thing. They're trying to get back to connection, but by bringing us, by trying to get back to peace in the land, by trying to over-regulate the emotions and make everything calm and they avoid, what they don't realize is that in, the, in those behaviors, it causes their partner to feel quite abandoned, right? right. So withdrawing only makes pursuers more uh, anxious and they're gonna pursue more. Right, more they anxious, and they withdraw more, and they withdraw more. Right, so um, I really, also- so I really like what you're saying too. And um, so, in terms of like the survival strategies, I think that's so brilliant. And um, being able to understand pursuers and withdrawers, and, and you said something so key, and I find this so often is where you know, people will hop on like Facebook groups and they'll start kind of pathologizing people as, oh, they must be on the spectrum or they must be narcissist or something because they lack empathy. They they can't feel emotion just because they don't express it. And I think that's such um, a, a misbelief, I guess you could say. It's just because somebody doesn't have the language or doesn't show it outside doesn't mean that they don't feel it. You know, in EFT and attachment, we don't pathologize. We understand everything in the in the attachment system and that withdrawing, not being able to express emotion outwardly is a survival strategy. It doesn't mean that they lack Absolutely. the capacity. And, and the other thing that we have is 
We also have some, there are some, um, some differences in the way that, that we are raised. Some children are raised with a lot of emotional language, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they're, they have like um, texture and color and um, gradations in their vocabulary of how they're gonna ex express a particular experience. Other children are raised devoid of, 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 of emotional language, right? So they develop alexithemia. They don't have the actual name to place to their experience. And so that's why sometimes we find, we, we meet people that are just so, uh, they have such a poverty of language. They're so limited in being able to actually uh, use language to describe what they feel. So what happens, especially with withdrawers who tend to, um, uh, fall under this category is they tend to focus more on metaphors and images or they can or they have an easier time talking about what's going on in their bodies mm -hmm. versus having versus really identifying the exact word that that describes their emotion right that is frustrating for us therapists sometimes because what we want to do is we're supposed to focus on the emotion we're supposed to in, you know make sure that they get to the exact word of what they're feeling. And sometimes we get so frustrated, we wanna give it to them. And, and then our supervisors, of course, tell us that we're, 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 we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to discover the emotion, not teach or tell them what they're feeling, right? We wanna evoke it. Um, you know, it's okay to do empathic conjectures where we can kind of help them out. But what, what we were originally taught is, but you know, like you have to really bring it out of them. What are they feeling? And sometimes it can really feel like torture. And, and for a lot of withdrawers, it feels like going to therapy is, is not very pleasant because they're just, it's just a place to go where they're just gonna to be told what, what's wrong with them and what they've done wrong. And it just feels very unpleasant. And also they sometimes feel pursued by the therapists themselves. Therapists can become pursuers too. Which is true because I think the role of the therapist is naturally already kind of in the pursuer role, even if you are a withdrawing therapist, because you're you're, right. both, you're reaching. You're, you're the one. You're the one trying to get to the information, right? And you have a lot show, of right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wanna, so so there's some very basic differences between um, pursuers and withdrawers, but one difference. I mean, I'm sorry. One similarity between them is they are pursuing, um, they're withdrawing and pursuing because they're protesting the disconnection and they're doing everything they can to get back to connection, okay? Right. Yeah. It's like they, order, they do the order a little bit differently, but they're after the same goal, which is have the relationship be okay and have the self be okay. But I think, and you tell me if I got this right, pursuers, they they're in their eyes it's like I can't be okay until I know the relationship is okay whereas withdrawers are like I need to make sure I'm okay before I can have it together to make sure the relationship's okay sometimes it's like I can't calm down until you come towards me um with a sense of commitment and openness and warmth and um and where I feel important and prioritized and kept in mind and like you, like I'm like, you want to take care of me. Right. And the withdrawer might say, and the withdrawer might say like, well, I can't, I want to get closer to you, but I can't get close to you. If I perceive you as so prickly and so dangerous, I first have to feel safe in order to be able to approach you. Right. And the pursuer might say, well, I have to, the only way that I can feel safe is if you approach me. So if you are pulling back and keeping a distance, that just gets my anxiety. That gets, just gets my limbic system going. And I feel anxious and I'm going to protest in my dysregulated way 
what withdrawers will do is uh, and that will say, well, then I can't, I have a hard time approaching that because that to me seems very dangerous. You know, if you look at um, porcupines and, por and, uh, and tortoises, for example, what you see is you see uh, a porcupine who's perfectly calm, but in a moment of threat, the quills go up, right? But and they, that, they fling those quills, right? right? And they look dangerous and they look angry, but they're not dangerous and angry per se, just for the sake of being angry. They're angry because maybe their predator is trying to get at them. But what's going on inside of them is they're, they're afraid. Mm -hmm. Fear causes that, not that, that instinctual uh, protective response, but it looks dangerous to everybody else. Tortoises have a similar problem, is when they feel threatened, that they go inward, they hide inside their shell. And we Im immediately assume that people that are like tortoises are disinterested, um, numb, uncaring, unemotional, disconnected people who, who just are antisocial or what you said, like they're probably- Or they're autistic, we mislead they're, they're, the, they're on the spectrum or- yeah. You know, or they're engineer type people. So of course they're not going to have any language, which is really not fair to all engineers. We, right. you know, and, engineers have a lot of access to their yeah, And we're, we're making these assumptions rather than seeing somebody's survival strategies and we're unfairly exactly. labeling them. <laughs> so becoming an EFT therapist gives us an opportunity to start to really see people in ways that, um, that helps, these categories are helpful. Like a lot of people say like, I don't wanna categorize everybody into one of these two groups, but categorizing people helps us to bring them closer together. For one, we're not gonna judge them. Mm -hmm. We're not gonna pathologize them. In fact, what we're gonna do is we're gonna validate their secondary reactive um, behaviors and their emotions, because these are all survival strategies that make sense. So Johnson says that implicit Underneath that reactivity is a desire and a movement back towards connection. What people don't understand is how could withdrawing be a pursue, would be a right. way to get back to connection and, and, right. and, the, and the explanation is what we And I love what Sue says too on top of this is that all behavior makes sense when viewed through the lens of attachment. Doesn't mean that the behavior is going to function towards secure, getting them secure attachment. But when you look at their attachment history and you understand attachment, how it works, then their behavior will make perfect sense. Like, oh, this is how you came to be a turtle and, and how you survive. And I love what you're saying is, you know, I found from some of my withdrawers, it's like, you know, when a pursuer, sometimes a pursuer will, you know, when they're, they're prickly and they throw those quills, they'll threaten the relationship, you know, or, or tell their partner how worthless they are. And they're really just trying to provoke a response, but the withdrawer hears that as you don't like me very much. You want to break up with me. And so if I go away, then we don't have that conversation where you break up with me, where you tell me that I'm worthless. And then maybe I can hang on to some idea, or even if it's a belief, a false belief that you might like me still, or that you don't see me as worthless, right? Yeah. So there is like a logic to it too. Absolutely. Look, Damasio says that the function of emotions is to guarantee our survival, right? And, and I'll, I'll explain this in a, in a, in, by talking a little bit about securely attached adults. You know, they can better acknowledge their needs and they can give and ask for support more effectively. They can put words to their experience and the way that they express that they're dissatisfied with something or that they need something is they do it more calmly and they do it more effectively, right? They're not 
um, they're not proceeding in any kind of danger signal or, 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 or danger cue, right? So they're less likely to be verbally aggressive or withdrawn during conflict. So, um, but pursuers and withdrawers, um, even though, so what, you know, what they do is they're blocked by these absorbing um, emotional regulation tasks. They're, they're completely blocked themselves. They're regulating their fears or they're dealing with their rage and the way that they're, they're, they're distracted by doing something imperative. They're trying to get back to calm. They're trying to get back to connection, right? So um, our job is to help them be able to have and make clear distilled messages about what's scary to them or what they need, right? right? Because- be able to talk we, about it without signaling the other person's threat detection system. Absolutely. So if we can somehow whisper um, into their limbic system and soothe them and calm them, they're much, um, it's more likely that they will be able to give messages of fear or need, which naturally should evoke caring and empathy in human beings. Right. That is what they that's why we want to bring them to a more vulnerable state and have them connect with each other in this way, because that should if the action tendency of the receipt of the person who receives it is to respond by by stepping forward, not stepping away. Yeah. And so and I love what you're saying, kind of by organizing pursuers and withdrawing experiences, we're able to kind of understand each other's threat detection system and what might be happening so we can help bring the two parts together in a securely attached way. And because today's focus is on withdrawers, I wanna say something about what's important about working with the person that is in the position of withdrawer is not to understand, <clears throat> is not to understand his action tendency per se, where he um, you know, gets defensive or shuts down and withdraws, but rather what the action tendency is in the service of, mm. right? One can meet a very critical withdrawer or very shut down withdrawer. The point is that both tendencies work to what? Push the other person away or to avoid the danger, right? Push That's the very, threat and the danger away. Push the threat and the danger away, exactly. Different than pursuers, you know, like, so, I mean, people don't think that withdrawers can be critical. There's a lot of critical withdrawers and there's a lot of angry withdrawers <clears throat> and a lot of defensive withdrawers. And this is one of the ways that I think about angry withdrawers or sometimes I'll call them hostile withdrawers is it's kind of like if you're trying to run away from enemy that's firing upon you and you're trying to go into your fortress, your safe fortress of solitude, but you can't get that enemy to stop firing on you to make a safe exit, you may turn around and hurl a, a bomb at them to try to get them to stop and go away so you can retreat to safety. Absolutely. That we see this in the um, in the animal world. If you corner an animal who's scared and he's cowering and he's cornered, at some point he'll roar forward and he'll show you his he'll bare his teeth and he'll become aggressive, right? Because he just he can't keep. There's nowhere else to go, right? So he's he's trapped. Yeah, yeah, that's so wonderful. So so if a therapist is working with a withdrawer in stage one, so we're focusing on withdrawers on this part. So what are some key indicators that might help a therapist understand that this is what they're working with? Well, um, key differences between pursuers and withdrawers in terms of, of, um, of markers, I usually like to think of like the, the classic litmus test is what are they most afraid of? 
Um, pursuers tend to be most afraid of abandonment, of not being a priority, of not being held in mind, you know, of not being important. Or, they don't feel important or special or cared for, taken care of. Withdrawers, the key markers is they feel rejected. They feel like they've lost that, that, um, that, that bright eye look from their partner that, that now they, they just, nothing they do is ever good enough. Right. Um, they talk about feeling inadequate or feeling like a failure in their partner's eyes. Oftentimes withdrawers have actually a slight better view of self than, um, and so they don't understand why their partner's constantly seeing them in a negative light. Um, and the way they, another marker is that the, the way that they tend to deal with um, criticism or the way they tend to deal with um, disconnection is they tend to um, go off on their own. They tend to go inward. They tend to get quiet. They tend to, even if they first are, are angry or defensive, but eventually the action tendency is a one of retreat and self-soothing, not co-regulation, but self-regulation. Um, and I think yeah. that- and Part of that dilemma is they, they don't feel the safety to co-regulate because it's like when, because you're part of the danger cue. If I'm near mm -hmm. you and I self if I try to co-regulate, then that opens me up to being criticized right. and told how I'm not good enough. And, and that would be terrible. So I'm going to go- And away. I think a, more, a much more positive way of thinking about withdrawers is it's not that they don't feel anything. Right. It's that he or she or they feel so much, mm -hmm. too much, that they have to numb it. Yeah. Right. So our job is to validate the numbing, mm -hmm. validate that secondary response. Like it makes so much sense that you have to numb it because it feels so big. It feels so scary. It feels so, you know, like pursuers often talk about feeling hurt and uh, sad and lonely. The withdrawers oftentimes speak about feeling afraid. You know, they get anxious. They feel afraid that their partner's angry with them, afraid that their partner doesn't love them anymore or as much, that, they'll, that they, they feel rejected. They feel like maybe their partner will just eventually reject them and replace them. And um, so, and also- And they it's have, kind of a silent experience. It's like happening inside of them and the pursuer often doesn't see, right? Because they can't live in their body uh, with them and I, they're not externally talking about it. So the, the pursuer starts to assume those feelings don't exist. And sometimes the therapist can buy right. into that, that and they, well, because they're not showing it. Right. It doesn't and exist. Well, busy on the inside <laughs> and they do all kinds of things to try to distract themselves or distract their partner like they'll 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 make they'll they'll try to be funny they'll try to be silly they'll make jokes or they'll just go oh, off and go, yeah Turn down that intensity right and they'll do things to just try to like um hope that their partner forgets what it was that was upsetting to their partner right by by just by changing the subject changing the the um, changing the, 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 the conversation, moving, changing the, the, trying to lighten it up, or they go off and they, and they, and they focus on very individual things, very individual tasks. They'll go and, and they'll work on their hobby. Or they'll, feel a sense of accomplishment, right? So let's just kind of step into a, a withdrawer shoes and I'm a natural pursuer. So, you know, learning about withdrawers has been a journey, but as you know, before I became a therapist, I was really anxious, obviously becoming a therapist and doing my own work. And especially an EFT therapist has helped me grow and mature so much and really stepping into the shoes of a withdrawer. It makes so much sense. And it's like, 
If you have someone who's coming after you, I mean, even if you're a pursuer, you probably had this experience where maybe you've been out pursued by a stronger pursuer who it feels like just won't get off your tail. And all they want to do is nail you for some thing they think you did or just tell you how bad you are and they just won't relent. And that's kind of the withdrawer experience is like, so if I can change the subject, maybe I can get you off my tail where you're not just constantly nitpicking at me or telling me how terrible I am or how I'm a failure or a mess up and disappointing you. And so on the one thing I didn't do out out of the list of 10 things, I did nine things, but I couldn't get to that 10th one. And that's the one thing you're going to focus on, right? That's so yeah, they'll do all kinds of things to just. I love it. that way of retreating and, and focusing on a task. It's like, see, I could do something. I did something now. See, I'm not a total mess up. <laughs> you know, it's like a way to prove to themselves to, to self-regulate. Okay. Also to communicate to their partner. I'm a good person, but you don't see my good part anymore. You don't see me. And I, and that's, I think, a, a, like almost like a desperation that withdrawers yeah. sometimes feel like you don't see that I am a good person. You don't see the good yeah. part of me. And, and I don't even know what to do. I don't know how to. And how that's to- something I hear a lot in my couples is, you know, when the withdrawer feels so picked on, they'll say something like, but look at all these other good things that I do that you never see. And the pursuers over here, like, yeah, you do those good things, but it doesn't take away from this pain that's happening right here. But the withdrawers are like, you only see me is terrible. Look at, I did this and I did this and I did this and you never see those, <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. It's such a dilemma. So in stage one, what are we working to help the withdrawer do? Like, what is the evolution of a withdrawer from the start of stage one up yeah. to right before we get to withdraw re-engagement? Right. Well, so uh, first of all, it, um, I think that when it comes to how much time you're going to spend in stage one versus stage two, I personally think that, especially if you have a very... Uh, um, a very strong withdrawal, like not by strength, I mean like a very big withdrawal. They're like really doing a lot of conflict avoidance and really having a hard time. You're gonna spend a lot more time in stage one. Yeah. Very influenced, right? You're gonna spend a lot more time in stage one. You are actually using stage one as an opportunity to train them to get into the habit of connecting more to their internal experience and trying to put words to it, right? So the whole point of stage one is to help couples to de-escalate so that when by the time we we then transition to the second stage of the model, we can start to then restructure the bonds from insecure to secure. That's the whole point of EFT is to create couple to help couples become more securely attached, right? So withdrawers, what we're going to want to do is to engage them more, re-engage them with their partner. But in order for uh, for that to really happen, um, pursuers have to be softer, softer and softened enough so that they can come forward. And then withdrawers have to be much more engaged for pursuers to soften. So in stage two, we're gonna to try to re-engage withdrawers and soften pursuers. And we can talk about what withdrawal re-engagement looks like in a moment. But the first thing that, that I just said is withdrawers have to be able to um, come, come out of their shell more. We have to help them to like make it safe enough. more present with their internal experience? To be more aware of it, to be able to name it, to be able to describe it as best as they can with the language and the tools that they have while sitting next to the source of danger, which is not easy. 
And that can be hard because oftentimes when you're trying to explore and evoke with a withdrawer in stage one, you get a lot of, I don't know, I don't right. know. And therapists well, can get kind of lost so, there. Absolutely. And so this is the thing is like, first of all, it gets easier with practice and it gets, and even for the withdrawers, it gets easier over time as long as the longer you stay in, in stage one. Um, because in, in, in fact, you need the help of the pursuer to help withdrawers come out a little bit more. How? By working towards do, to do many little softenings with the pursuer. Helping the pursuer put into softer language their experience helps the withdrawer um, to come out more. Helping pursuers to focus more on their experience, to talk about themselves instead of what's wrong with their partner helps withdrawers come out a little bit more. One of the main problems that we have one of the main problems that we see in trying to access emotions with withdrawers is they're often saying, I don't know, I don't know, I have no, I can't feel my feelings, right? That is often the experience once their limbic system is triggered, right? When they are calmer, they can use their resources to access other parts of their experience. So they may not have the language, they may still have a lexithemia, but they have access to other parts. They know what feels good, they can remember the positives, they also can um, know what they think. They also can tell you a lot more about what they feel in their body, right? So we use what we have, we use what we can with what we've got and what we can do to help them access more of their internal experience is we, we take what we, we take the little things that they give us, the simplest of things, and we try to expand them, we try to create something with them. We build our own entry points as therapists to be able to try to access and explore them further. So Sam, could you maybe give an example of what that might sound like in session? Absolutely. So, um, so one of the things that I might say is um, um, a withdrawer might, might say something like, I don't really know what I feel. I just know that um, I feel like uh, tightening in my throat when I feel like my partner gives me a look like um, he, she, or they are, are, are disappointed in me and unhappy with me. And I just feel, what do you feel though? What's the emotion that you feel? I don't know. Um, I just know that I just feel like this pressure here. Um, or first they say, I don't know. I, I don't have, I'm not very good with emotions. I, 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 I have no clue. I, my partner gets on me all the time about not being able to name my emotions. Well, so, so what words do you use? Like, I feel like blocked. I feel like I have a cover from here down. Like I can't access my heart. I can't access my emotions. I feel tight. In fact, I feel tight in my neck. I feel tight in my throat. The therapist what we are supposed to, what we do in stage one with our pursuers and our withdrawers is we reflect what we hear, we do reflections and we evoke and we validate and we put, and we're trying to use attachment language to help them um, learn that underneath the protest is a longing for connection, an attachment longing for connection. And also uh, what makes it difficult to get back to connection are all those attachment fears that my partner doesn't love me anymore, that my partner doesn't care about me, that my partner only sees me as inadequate, right? So what you would do as a therapist is you would use a little bit more of a lateral and expanding kind of reflection to put more meat on the bones. They give you very little 
and you try to put a little bit more meat on the bones by how you reflect it. So you might say, so you feel this pressure in your neck, but you can't access your emotions. That makes so much sense to me, validate it, because it seems like you've like something just so big just happened. You know, you feel it so big that you have to kind of shut it down, you know, and now you've, you've shut it down and you've protected a big part of yourself, but now you can't access it, right? When we want to ask you about it. So, so what you do have access to is what you feel right here in your neck. It's almost like there's a constriction, like you're trying to close something down, not let, maybe not let something in, or maybe not let something out. Um, you know, maybe that's what this is about. Um, can, can you tell me about like that sense of tightening? Like, how does that, what, how does that protect you a little bit from what you're experiencing? How does that help you? Or what do you, what do you feel like, um, um, what, what do you think about when your throat starts to, to feel tight? What are some of the things that you think about or how, or where else do you feel something in your body? You just make a little bit of expanding, but you reflect it in, in, in a more lateral way by using your internal thesaurus and using more language for the little simple things that they tell you that can, that can really help a lot to make it, um, less torture for them. Like we would used to place a lot of pressure on Lazarus to come up with a vulnerable emotional language. Mm -hmm. And this put Lazarus in a bind where on top of everything else that's going on, sorry, that's my, that's my doorbell. And okay. on top of everything else that's going on, they now also need to know and understand their own emotions and have language to describe it. And, you know, um, Nobody ever really taught them to talk about their emotions and name them and describe them and understand them. So now when we have to translate everything that they do in attachment terms, we use their images, we use their metaphors, or we use what they say about how things feel in their body or how they notice their brain shutting down or how they become sleepy in moments of conflict. I don't know if you've ever worked with a, with a couple where withdrawer will say, when my partner starts getting mad at me or wants to talk about things that are uncomfortable for me, I start to yawn. I start to get really sleepy. Or you see uh, them so yawn in session. You see them yawn, you actually, and you see them sometimes fall asleep. My couples will say like, I'm talking to my partner about something that I'm really upset about and he's falling asleep or she's falling asleep. How's that possible? It just makes me more angry, right? And they're just trying to like, survive the moment. They're trying to shut, all systems are shutting down because it's just so overwhelming. Right. They, and they feel it so much. Yeah. So sometimes what I hear what Jar is saying in this place is, you know, when you're saying, you know, it's like you kind of learn to block this part off or, you know, not feel this part. Sometimes it'll be like, well, I don't, I don't do it on purpose. Like it just happened. Right. right. Absolutely. And they really don't do it on purpose. And we need to, as therapists, also also say, absolutely, you don't. It's, I, I totally believe you. This is automatic. This is your this is your brain trying to really get you out of a very difficult situation. So we mine the emotions or the symptoms or the experiences. We develop them. We expand them little by little. But here's the thing: we expand what's simple into something more complex when we can, um, and what's complex we uh, make more simple. This is something that I've learned from the um, soon-to-be trainer in Argentina, in Argentina, Natalia Gilbert. She says, we expand what's simple into something more complex and what's complex into something more simple with highly, especially with highly cognitive and verbose withdrawers. What we would wanna to try to do is we would wanna to try to simplify what they're saying. We all, there's all a lot of withdrawers that are very verbose 
but they're stuck in their heads and they, and they can't access their emotions. But boy, do they talk. They talk about a lot of things and talk about a lot of thoughts and they just run around in circles, but they don't drop down. So our job is to try to get them into smaller bites, simpler bites, where we can act, have them even enact thoughts or um, the, the feeling in the neck. Can you tell your partner that you feel that tightening in your neck? Just like having them practice putting into language what's going on in their bodies, what are their, some of their images, what are some of their worries, some of the reactive emotions, some of the action tendencies. So when I feel like, when I see you mad, what I wanna do is I wanna shut down. I wanna move away. I wanna get, I wanna get under the covers, you know? And just having them practice putting those, putting those things into words and having their partner receive those things in a, in a safe, calm way helps them to gain courage to do it more. Right. But we have to use and their language. Um, we have to use their language and their images in these moments in which we want to invite them to do an enactment. Right. Those are key handles into their experience. And it's more, if you use their language, it's going to feel like this really relates to me. This is true Absolutely. to my experience. And not only to their experience, Annabelle, but also to their partner's experience of them. Can I give you an example? Right. Yeah. You know, like sometimes we try to put, we as therapists are taught to put more words to their experience and we translate what they say into much more complex experiences. And they, and then we ask them to enact it and to commute, to kind of communicate that to their partner. And it doesn't come out well. Or it doesn't, because it's not their language, it's not their words, or the partner doesn't respond well because they don't recognize what their what our partner is saying. Like, this is not my husband. Who 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 who, who, who changed this person for my husband, right? Like, or you're just saying this because a therapist told you. You're just saying because a therapist just said it, and these are not your words, these are the therapist's words, right? So when we guide them to describe what they feel in their bodies or their images, it lands much better. For example, the therapist helps, let's say that we have a man. Uh, we want to help the man to expand their experience into speaking about anxiety or or their anguish, right? We we want to, you know, they're talking about the, the 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 tightening in their their neck, and the therapist says it sounds like you get really anxious, and maybe you're feeling some anguish. You know, um, in Spanish-speaking countries, we use the word angustia a lot more, and it's it's a com- it's anguish and 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 anxiety and deep, deep suffering, right? It's like in English, like anguish is not a word we often use in EFT, but I, I love the, the yeah, use of that. It's, so it's, true. A deeper, it's a deeper feeling, right? Um, but they're, but to, so when the, we teach that to the, we, like we reflect that to the withdrawer and then they turn and they tell their partner I'm feeling anguish and, exa- and anxious and anguish, the partner doesn't react as we might wish because this is not their common language. But when we ask them to just share how they feel, that they feel a knot in their throat, um, or on how their emotions feel like they their emotions get flattened or they have this cover that blocks them from being able to access and they're hard to access. And the, and the person turns around and says to the partner, I just feel completely plugged. I feel completely blocked. And I feel this knot right here in my throat. All of a sudden the partner tears up. They didn't tear up when the person said, I feel uh, anguish, but they tear up when the person says, I feel a knot in my throat. Why? Because that's the, that's the partner they know. That's the partner they recognize. Mm-hmm. That man or that woman um, mm-hmm. or that partner, um, that's who they know. They recognize that person. So we, we, I really want to like really make a point to yeah. all the listeners. Well, so, let's not this torture is, our withdrawers. Yes, yes. Let's and not make them saying, feel badly for how it is that right. they experience things. 
Right. So you're saying some things that are really, really important. And I want to kind of reflect some of them and then ask a couple questions because some things you said raised raise flags in my head. So, you know, A, what you're saying makes so much sense to me because I even just, you know, recently have had an experience with a withdrawer where we were trying to enact something very simple and positive and they've enacted much deeper things. But, you know, like we put it all together and I was like, you know, can you turn and share this with your partner? And they're like, uh, what do you want me to say? And it's like, oh, we're not, we're not there. We're not in the emotion. I've lost them somewhere. Also, you've lost them somewhere because by you were, you're, we, we, this happens to me as well. It happens to everybody. We, we lose them because when we're reflecting, as we are reflecting, we put too many words to it. So our job is keep it much more simple and much briefer. Okay. Okay. So that Otherwise, makes sense. They're, they're in a state of dysregulation. I got to tell you, you're, they know you're, they know what's coming. They know that you're about to invite them to make eye contact with the source of threat and danger. And then they have to also remember everything you just said. It's yeah. too much. Right. So which is interesting because even when you're enacting positive emotions, which a lot of therapists don't do, but to me, it, it's highly important. And I know a lot of the trainers do this too, but when it's a, this happened to be a traumatized withdrawer. So, you know, when you enact something positive, it invites them into an area where they have to let their guard down. And that means they're unprotected, which is where all the danger happens. So even positivity can become a trigger for their own nervous system. But I want to ask something too. Well, a couple of things that are super important here is a, you know, you mentioned a few times, like, you know, maybe enacting their images or what's in their head or their thoughts. And the thing that comes to my mind, so I know in EFT, like we want to go experiential where it seems like we're kind of anti-cognitive, even though we're not really, but we want to make sure it's experiential. So yeah, A, I yeah. think the, the thing about going to their head, like what do they kind of tell themselves tells us a little bit more about the danger, the story, like the, the attachment threat will be contained in the story they tell themselves, which is what we're after. But how do we make sure that we're not too cognitive and we actually have them on the experiential level you know like the common question therapists say is how do we know we're deep enough especially with the withdrawal if we're not trying to overload yeah. them well we're not going to overload them and we're not going to be very deep at first right like i think of like when you think about the steps and you think about the step where we're accessing uh, from the reactive emotions down towards more of the vulnerable emotions step three i think of it almost like as if it was like a swimming pool that has a shallow end and a deep end Step three has a shallow side and step three has a deep side. Lisa Palmer Olson talks about deep step threes that are almost imperceptibly uh, different than the beginnings of step five and stage two, right? Like that's how, that's how much they can already access. They're still um, escalated. So we don't think of it as stage two work, but, but it's deep work with exploring their motion. But but right at the beginning, we're at the very, very shallow end of step three. So it doesn't feel very deeply affected. Now, there are some with art that we will never get that deep with, no matter what you do, because they just don't, um, they just can't put words to their, their uh, experience. But when, when they say, I feel nothing, or I don't know what I feel, what we as therapists need to do is make sure to be, pay close attention to their affect and their body and their eyes. Um, do you see any moisture in their eyes, right? And one of the things that I want you to do, to think about is, um, you know, we wanna, um, we wanna um, 
we want to be able to be present and attuned with our withdrawers because presence and attunement is very calming to them, okay? Um, we are trying to, if we can help regulate their limbic system, they can help, they can start to revise their limbic system, right? Uh, limbic revision and limbic regulation go hand in hand. And so one of the things that I really like is the idea of being, um, and this is also something comes from, from uh, Natalia Gillibert. She, she, she says, we need to be the amygdala whisperers. We have to become the amygdala whisperers, you know, where um, by using our soft and gentle voices and repetition of the attachment message of longings or fears. How do we get there with withdrawers? Um, there, are, there are lots of different ways that we can get them to connect to their longings or their fears. To do this with a withdrawer, we want to reflect the pursuer's experience and we simplify it and put it in attachment terms. And we could even use a proxy voice and we can say things like, I don't know what to do when you seem so far away. We're reflecting the pursuer's experience to the withdrawer. I don't know if you care about me. When I'm upset and I see and you seem so far away, I feel like you don't care about me. I don't know if you still care about me. And I get scared about that. Mm. Right. And that is how we help then withdrawers to receive the message of the pursuer. We use the proxy voice. We reflect the pursuer's experience, but we do it softly and we do it repeatedly. And we say it in terms that they can understand. Simple, softer, slower. Withdrawers all of a sudden can now hear it from us because we're not the source of danger. So we're like the translators and they can hear the message. We help withdrawers receive a much more simplified, more distilled message. And we use that soft, gentle, re repeating uh, voice and repeating message, especially of the attachment longing or fear. Now, what if they don't give us very much? Well, one of the things that I would say is um, use parts of self-language. A part of you feels this, this uh, tightening part of this tightening in your throat. A part of you feels like you can't access, like there's like you're feeling like something happened, something got going and you had to kind of protect yourself in that moment. You're protecting yourself. Because it's something must feel um, really uncomfortable for you to have to protect yourself. Am I getting you? Is it uncomfortable? Can you talk about that discomfort? Right? So you kind of expand it a little bit. We use a lot of validation. We also use a lot of celebration. Like when they can put something into words, we want to really kind of make sure that we give a lot of positive reinforcement that they're doing a good job. Withdrawers oftentimes feel like everybody thinks that they're doing a terrible job. And so a little bit of praise can go a long way. Yes. Right? yes. Also, Anna, grab onto smaller things and enact them in smaller little bites. It doesn't have to be a long, this is what I think, where I think we lose our withdrawals. We, 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 we give them these long multi-layered descriptions of their experience and they get lost. So it's better to do lots of smaller pieces enacted, helps them to prepare them to do that deeper step three work. Right. So um, describing their body, describing the image, describing a little bit of their emotions, helping to expand the emotional experience a little bit at a time is, is really helpful. So let's say, for example, that the patient says, the, the withdrawer says, I feel flattened emotionally when my partner is upset with me. I feel something in my throat and then I, I just lose my ability to, to even to think and to feel anything. It's even hard to swallow. Mm -hmm. A therapist would grab uh, onto that little thing and just try to expand it. You, the therapist might say something like, 
Okay, so something grabs you there. Something grabs you in, in your neck or in your throat. Of course, validation. It makes so much sense because, you know, you expand it and you validate it. You know, you're hearing your partner upset and it doesn't feel good. So things start to tighten up. You're having a hard time and it makes it hard to even swallow. Am I getting it? Right? So you're just like putting it, reflecting it, slowing it down, having them say it to their partner. I get upset and then I feel like I can't swallow. If their partner receives it well, more will come out. Okay? They're going to release information drip by drip. Okay? Pursuers will release their experience more like a hose. Right, a fire hose. Yeah, we have to make you know the the path that withdrawers have to take to change mm -hmm. is a lot longer, a lot further, and I think a lot harder in in, in many cases um, because avoiding contact is their way of really coping with conflict and the discomfort in their partner. So they they have a lot to have to overcome before they can start to get to a place where they start to give you more than a little drop at a time. Yes. So I, I'm going to hurl a, a wrench at you and see kind of, you know, what you think about this. So what if you have a withdrawer who gives you a lot of closed responses? Like when you, when you ask questions that you're trying to evoke their experience, they just give you like yes or no's. Well, what I do is, if I, if I see that that's happening, I have to take a look at what are the kinds of questions that I'm asking? You know, if I'm asking questions that are directly forcing them again, like a tor like torturer to talk about um, things that make them sad or scared or hurt or lonely or, or even sad, feel good. I actually wanna say, let's try to go for some of the positives. You know, um, you can access withdrawers by working with positives and then using the antonym, using your own internal thesaurus of, or, or your, your dictionary of antonyms, your internal dictionary of antonyms to discover what's missing. So for example, the withdrawer says, you know, my partner, she just doesn't look at me the way she used to anymore. You know, all I receive are criticisms or you're talking about, you've talked about this and you ask the person, Man, how do you feel when you hear the criticisms? I don't know. What happens inside? What do you feel in your body? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I feel nothing. Like I remember even in one training tapes who says, you feel nothing, all right? Because that's what the person says, I feel nothing. You feel nothing. And like, it's almost like a, like, how's that even possible that you feel nothing? But what you do is, um, what you would say is, tell me about the moments in which she used to look at you differently. Tell me about those positive moments in which you, you tell me about the moments in which you feel like she does see you well, or your partner, he, she, or they look at you well. They, 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 they see you in a positive light. Tell me about those moments. Um, and the, um, the, the, the person might say, well, their eyes would light up. They'd smile and they'd laugh a lot more. Um, there was a natural flirt. He, she, or they were more of a natural flirt. I loved it. She was playful and happier than, like sometimes withdrawers can have a lot more words when we're talking about positive things, right? Um, um, and so, and, and sometimes they'll even say, I see my partner be so nice and their eyes light up for others. But as soon as she comes home, it changes at home and she's upset and angry with me, mm -hmm. right? When you ask them about their own internal experience, they can't name the negative feelings they have, but they can 
describe the scene, right? So what we want to do is we want to be able to explore, well, how was it then to experience it? When, when you used to get this from your partner, how, what would you get? What they say is it would feel so good. I felt special, right? Like sometimes withdrawers will say something like, so how do you feel? I don't know. Um, what you, what, something else that Lisa Palmer Olson taught me years ago, she can say, well, does it feel like this? Does it feel like this? Or does it feel like this? And that they'll answer. They'll say, oh no, it feels like this, or it feels like this. Oh, so it feels bad. Or if they go like this, they say, what do you mean by this? Is it mean like in the middle, like medium? And they'll sometimes say, no, like flattened. I feel flattened. It's what he had even said, right? So what you, but so, so what you want to do is you want to validate whatever they say, even if they say bad, bad, you know, not good. Like I've enacted not good because <laughs> they just had no other words. But you want to validate, you want to say, of course, it must have felt so nice to experience your partner in that way. And then things begin to change and, and you lost that look. And, and then the criticisms began. It must be so hard to not feel so good um, like you used to, to not feel special. Am I getting you? That it used to feel good and that now it's hard to not feel so special? Yes. Can you tell your partner about this? Can you tell your partner that it doesn't feel as special now? Notice how we're not talking about, I feel sad, I feel hurt, I feel scared, I feel lonely. We're talking about in cognitive language, in descriptive language, they're talking to their partner, but it doesn't feel as good now. I used to feel special. I now don't feel so special, okay? I promise you, that's a very vulnerable thing for a withdrawer to say, right? To be able to put that into words. They don't have access maybe to the word, the emotional language, but they have access to something else that describes it. Mm -hmm. So take what you can, use what you have, and don't force them to have to use that affective vocabulary, that language, because they, they, that, that will help, that will put them into a position of feeling like more inadequate. So whatever they give you, you can help them to have a successful experience. We don't torture them. We just, we touch it. We open it up. We help them to increase their window of tolerance little by little. The more we do this, the easier it's going to get. You have to keep the faith that um, you will get better and better with time at working with withdrawers and also that your withdrawers will help to uh, gain greater sense of confidence, greater sense of therapeutic alliance, and that little by little, you're increasing their window of tolerance so that they can tolerate more of what you're asking them to do. It sounds like in the process, the therapist will be expanding their own window of tolerance for the drip, <laughs> drip, drip, you know, because even it's as so the true. drawing therapist, you, you know, let's hurry up and get to the place where we feel better. And it's like this drip can, you know, or can feel like pulling teeth or, you know, so that therapist will, will increase their window of tolerance. And so what should a, so a withdrawer by the end of stage one will have greater access to their emotions. They'll be able to name it, to identify it. Mostly what we want to make sure at the end of stage one that withdrawers have is maybe they have a greater access to their emotions, but what we're trying to do is that by the time we get to stage two, we've already identified what are some of their emotions? What are some of their attachment emotions? What are some ways in which they view themselves? But mostly the way we know that we can move from stage one to stage two is um, they understand what their negative cycle has to do with what's missing in the relationship. Those, those unmet attachment needs of their partner 
or of themselves, and they can put it into words and they can stop the cycle. That's key. Withdrawers and pursuers need to be able to recognize, name it, claim it, so they can then tame the negative cycle. What, does, what that means is that a, a withdrawer needs to say to themselves, it's not that my partner is always so angry, is that by my that it's that my withdrawing scares them. Mm. Pursuers in transitioning to stage two, they need to be able to say, it's not that my partner doesn't love me and that they want to move away from me and get away from me because I don't, because I'm not important to them and they don't care about me anymore. It's that I scare them by the way that I express my, my dissatisfaction or my distress. They're scared. It's not that they don't love me. They're scared. The way that we help them to see the, the attachment um, significance and what's, and what's missing and what they long for, how it all makes sense in attachment terms, calms the system down. Mm-hmm. By the time withdrawers get to stage two, we need them to be able to do deeper enactments where they can talk about, we kind of, we, ha- we have to kind of keep them in focus in terms of their internal working model, their view of self. What do they think about themselves? How did they, what were some of the messages that they picked up along the way um, their, during their, their entire life experience? But for sure, we sometimes will, we connect the past with the present and you get a very powerful um, uh, um, experience of, of, of how the past informs the present, right? Mm-hmm. Their internal working model. We help them put into words what their, what their emotions are, but mostly what their attachment emotions are. And if um, we, we're really working hard to get them to talk about their attachment fears mm-hmm. in the process, we're going to identify what their longings are. So that part of stage two is to get them to be able to express what they need to their partner. That's step seven. Right. But first in step five, they're not going to have a new experience. They're already going to be exploring things that they've explored. It's not like they're going to talk about anything brand new, yeah. right? So like someone might come and you might want them to like go into this deep place and they say, I've got nothing. I didn't think about anything this week. And you're like, okay, that's okay. Cause we've been talking about this for months now, how sometimes it just doesn't feel good when your partner seems so upset and so critical. Mm-hmm. And, and then what we do is we just help them go back to the, the things we've talked about in the past, but we want to help them create a deep enough statement to their partner about their needs, their, their fears, um, and how it connects to how they think about themselves. And I find, so in stage two, so we're switching over to stage two, you know, I, I love what you said. And that's something that I find comes up a lot is when you're having them focus inward and they'll come into session and they're like, well, it didn't occur to me to think inward or focus inward on how I feel. And this is even in the absence of conflict. And I find in a lot of stage two, you know, again, the absence of conflict doesn't necessarily mean the presence of connection. But I think for a lot of withdrawers, because again, of the way that they've learned to find safety, that for them, the absence of conflict is enough for them and feeling safe enough um, is enough. Yeah. Versus, and then never, it's never occurred for them that they can have something even deeper on the positive spectrum than just a lack of conflict. It's like, well, that's good enough for me. I don't need to dig deeper. And they've learned to also just be good with what they have and not ask for more, you know, and when they do go through like stress or stuff at work, because they're so used to self-soothing and self-regulating, 
it may not even occur like, you know, let me share my, um, let me share my day or my week or my stresses, what lives inside of me with my partner. Um, so yeah, I think I lost you here for a second though, just some little technical, um, All right, so we just had a little bit of a technical glitch, but we are back in business. So we were just talking about withdrawers in stage two and how, you know, the absence of conflict doesn't always equal the presence of connection, but for withdrawers, um, sometimes the absence of conflict is like good enough for them. It's never occurred that to dig further or ask for anything more or deeper, that it could be richer, deeper, stronger, even though we know pursuers are looking for that. And so when you're in stage two and you're trying to evoke from them searching inward and they're like, well, nothing happened this week, nothing bad, you know, um, but they're still, you know, whatever's happening to them in life, they're still self-soothing. They're still keeping it inward and it doesn't occur that, oh, I'm having workplace stress. I could share it with my partner and somehow that would deepen our connection. So what do you kind of do when that partner says, well, it doesn't really occur and, you know. Well, I would think that, uh, someone who is still kind of in a very avoidant um, and actually taking advantage of those moments of calm and peace between them and their partner, it's very, that's very calming and very soothing and they're taking advantage of it and they don't, they don't really want to talk about anything uncomfortable in part because they don't know what their partner might do with it. Their partner might start criticizing them or judging them for what went wrong at work or something, right? So like the, the more they experience judgment and criticism, the more internal and, um, and shut down and numbing they're going to engage in. They're gonna shut down, they're gonna numb out, they're not gonna to wanna to talk about anything, right? So it makes sense, but I would still think that this is an escalated withdrawal. I wouldn't think of this person yet as in stage two. And a stage two per, uh, withdrawal is able to put more, in, more words into the experience of disconnection. It may be that they don't really open up very much. It may be that they're introverts. It may be that they're just not very chatty people. We're not necessarily going to be able to change some of these things that have to do with their temperament or their character style um, or just, you know, um, how outward, how social, how verbal they are in general. But what we're talking about specifically is how can we help them really talk about what it's like in moments of disconnection? Focus the stage two work with a withdrawer is to help engage them to talk about what they feel when their partner critical way, when their partner seems um, to um, be so disappointed or dissatisfied, right? And in that moment, um, they we've been talking about this for months, right? We've been aware of that for uh, in, in all of during all of stage one work. So this is a moment to be able to say, I'm going to do something. We're going to focus a little bit differently now as we enter into stage two. We're going to do something a little bit um, more focused. I'm going to spend a little bit more time with one of you uh, instead of with both of you. We're just going to go into, because this is the most intrapsychic part of the whole model, right? So we're just going to go more into their internal experience. So when your partner does X, Y, or Z, you've told me that in those moments, you start to really shut down, your emotions seem to really flatten, you can't access them, you feel tightening in your chest and your throat, and you lose your words, right? And what I want to do is I want to invite you back to being able to talk about that experience, those experiences. I know it's not happening right now, I know it didn't happen in the last week, but this is an opportunity for us to 
in a much safer way now that you're more de-escalated, now that you're, you guys aren't getting into your negative cycle as often, for you to be able to just take a little bit more of a risk today in session. Will you do that with me? I'll guide you. Because I guess what I would like to, you to be able to do is to be able to give a more complete message to your partner about what your experience is when you feel so um, shut down, when you feel so flattened and numb. Can you, so I wanna first talk about it with you a little bit just to kind of get a sense of, that I get it. And then I'm gonna invite you to share that with your partner. How would that be? How would it be for you to receive that from your partner? So kind of like set up the session, set up the transition to stage two withdrawal re-engagement, right? You know, having them be able to just talk about whatever happened at the office dinner, during that week, that's what we hope they will be able to do maybe in stage three, mm. right? Once they feel safer to be more open, once they feel like no matter that what they, that anything they say can and will be used against them, mm. um, that's still state, that's still possible that that, that, that is, that, that's what's going on in stage two. So, you know, look, when people talk about de-escalation, it doesn't mean they don't have, it doesn't mean that they're already re-engaged. Like that's the whole point of stage two is helping them take bigger risks helping them increase their window of tolerance, helping them have um, these, these emotionally corrective experiences mm -hmm. and having them be able to um, really um, take more greater risks with, their, with, with just who they are and what they feel, right? Stage one, it's more describing the reactive emotion and the vulnerable emotion. Stage two, it's not just their vulnerable emotion. It's not just sad or scared or, or alone. It's the attachment emotion. It's scared that you are mad at me. It's scared that I, that you will that I I can never get it right with you. Scared that you that you will um, eventually tire of me, not want to be with me. That's much more of an attachment expression of fear, right? right. That's the attachment fear. Right. We want to help them to start to identify that they are worthy or deserving of love, that it's okay to be a creature of that desires love and to be able to reach and ask for that in stage two. And that's, and that's what, and that, and that's what comes from having their partner really be able to accept what they're saying. That's step six, where you facilitate acceptance of what they're saying. And then when they take the big risk of asking for what they need and their partner says, I hear that I, and I, I understand that and I want to be able to be that kind of partner for you. And I promise you, I will do my best. I'm going to try to give you this. When I feel really upset, I'm going to try to not come at you so in such an angry way, but I'm going to um, connect with you in, in a softer way, if, if at all possible, right? So that's basically how we would work with withdrawers in stage two. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you, Sam, so much. Now remind everyone if they wanna attend a training or they wanna invite you to their area to do a training, or maybe if you've published anything, how can people find you? Um, well, I have a website uh, for the San Francisco Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy, www.sfceft.com or you can write the whole thing down. Um, DrSamHinnich.com are ways to learn more about me, learn more about the San Francisco Center and the trainings we offer. Um, and there's always ways to contact me through the website. Perfect. And I will make sure that I put this in the description for this video on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast, then you'll just have to rewind and write it down. <laughs> 
So, but make sure that you look up Sam, that you get in touch with him. If you have questions, if you want to attend a workshop, if you want to invite him to your area, you know, I know the trainers are, are always excited to travel or do a zoom training or whatever works. Um, so just make sure that you like and follow Sam and, you know, thank you again so much for being on our show, Sam. And thank you so much to our viewers. We hope you've really enjoyed what you have to what you've learned today and make sure that you hit subscribe. Oh, also make sure that you check out my book on Amazon using relentless empathy in therapeutic relationships, connecting with challenging or difficult clients. It has been endorsed by Sue Johnson and it relates a lot of EFT concepts around relentless empathy um, and working with different types of challenging clients. So make sure you check that out on Amazon and make sure that you hit subscribe because more videos are on the way. Don't forget to buy my book, Using Relentless Empathy in the Therapeutic Relationship, Connecting with Challenging and Resistant Clients for Helping Professionals. Available on Amazon or on my website, www.drbugatti.com.